Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. My name is Peter Sparding. I'm a fellow here at GMF and I will function as your host for this episode. With me here and serving almost as a co-host today is my colleague and fellow in GMF's Asia program, Andrew Small. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. So today we want to talk about trade and trade policy. This is particularly exciting, not only because it's so current and topical, but rather because we have a guest with us who we have hoped to have on for a long time, and that is Professor Jennifer Hillman. Jennifer is currently a professor at Georgetown University. In her career, she has worked in about every imaginable function on U.S. and international trade policy, from Capitol Hill to United States Trade Representative to the World Trade Organization, and of course, not least as a fellow here at GMF a few years back, which was an absolute delight. Welcome back to GMF, Jennifer. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure and honor to be back here. So since this is not a podcast, that's only focused on trade. I thought we could start a bit more broadly and talk first about where we currently stand and how we got here. Certainly in the last 10 years and from when you and I worked here, Jennifer, at, at GMF on these issues, we've come quite a long way. So eight or nine years ago, we worked on things such as the WTO's Doha Round multilateral trade negotiations that were still the main focus of trade policy discussions, but they were already stalling. And when they finally collapsed or just fizzled out, many countries, especially the US and countries in Europe, took a different approach that emphasized more regional or what they would call then mega regional trade deals. For the US, this was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, and then of course, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, that's also well known in, in Europe. And then for the last two years or even three years, maybe the trade debate has shifted once more. And that has to do, of course, with the election of Donald Trump as U.S. president. So maybe let's talk a bit about where we stand now. For the president, trade is almost famously one of the topics that he seems to have a longstanding interest in and position on. He has campaigned on this issue and now he seems to be governing at least similarly to what he was campaigning on. He has initially withdrawn the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership right when he came into office. Um, he started and now has concluded a renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. And broadly, the administration wants to renegotiate or negotiate new trade deals bilaterally with a number of countries. And then hanging over all of this, and we'll get to this a bit later maybe in the program, is the issue of the relationship with China, not only on trade, but particularly on trade. As I said, we'll get into the details of that. But I thought we should start maybe with uh, your assessment of current U.S. trade policy. So the approach that this administration has taken, do you think it's a comparable to previous approaches? Is it a coherent approach? What are the goals? Is it more bark than bite? Or is this actually an attempt to overthrow the current trade system? Well, I would say for the first maybe year of the Trump administration, a lot of us thought that it was going to be more bark than bite. Uh, but there's no question that over the last year itself, it's become very clear that this administration has a totally different approach to trade policy than what we've seen um, really arguably since the 1930s in the United States, which is fundamentally a protectionist policy that is designed to provide a wall, if you will, around the U.S. market, around certain particular industries in the United States that is a shunning of the multilateral rules and to some degree an attempt to throw out the multilateral rule book. And it is one that is very much a mercantilist policy that looks at all of trade in a very zero-sum game. Anytime I win, you lose or vice versa. And all of those are substantial departures from where we've been. 
What does that then mean for, for the systems? We have seen the attempts to renegotiate mostly bilaterally. Is this approach compatible with a multilateral approach or is this ultimately bent on breaking this? I don't know whether it's absolutely bent on breaking it, but it is certainly a sign of a significant amount of disdain for the multilateral system. The Trump administration and particularly President Trump seems to see everything in very bilateral terms and somehow believes, I think quite erroneously, that the United States gains more, has more leverage, has more power if it does everything on a bilateral basis than it does on a multilateral basis. If you think about it, his whole strategy of make America great again, you have to ask yourself, when did the president think America was great? And at least from a trade perspective, my sense is his view would be in the 1950s. Why? Because in the 1950s, trade was a very small part of the overall U.S. GDP. Products were made in one place and traded to one other place. Trade was largely around trade in goods, and you didn't have all of the complications that come when you start to trade in services or trade in goods with intellectual property components to them, much less have to think about a digital economy or e-commerce or trade in the in the very 21st century way. You didn't have global supply chains. It was a much simpler and different way of thinking about trade. And my own sense is Trump is very much frozen in that 1950s mindset. And with that comes this focus, I think, on the bilateral trade deficit that the U.S. runs with a number of countries, notably China, but also Germany and so on. What do you make of that? That's always been there. People have pointed out that that's really not caused by certain trade deals or so, but by a number of factors, and it doesn't by itself matter. But the president keeps coming back and almost treats it as the U.S. losing money. Yes. And again, this is one of the many things that I think uh, at least the president simply has just flat dead wrong. I mean, he does not understand the basic economics of trade. So, and I think you see that reflected in, in everything that he says about the trade deficits. This presumption that if somehow an American consumer purchases an imported item, presumably the consumer got the imported item that they wanted and that's what they wanted to do. And if you listen to the president, he would make it sound like wherever the import came from, that that government has somehow stolen from the United States. So it's just an utterly preposterous way to think about trade. It's also wrong in the way he describes the deficit. First of all, he tends to focus only on trade in goods. So he almost never takes into account services. And obviously, the United States is a very large exporter of services. So as soon as you include trade in services, all of those deficit numbers go down very substantially from what the president would say. Second of all, he does not want to recognize that trade deficits are most of all a function of macroeconomics. Anytime the United States is borrowing more than we are taking in as revenue, we are going to run a deficit. That is just the way the math works. And so the concern that many of us have is because the president has added $1.5 trillion to the U.S. debt as a result of the tax bill, and has added another trillion dollars to the debt as a result of the budget, all of our deficits with all of our trading partners are going to get bigger and bigger. And the concern that many of us have is that the president is going to respond by lashing out at trade policy and suggesting that because we now are running a bigger trade deficit with whoever the country is, fill in the blank, we therefore need to put on more tariffs on whatever their product is in order to deal with this trade deficit, even though it is a function of macroeconomic policy. I just wanted to prod a, a little bit on the U.S. attitude to the WTO under this administration 
Um, in particular, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit. I think the the crisis with the dispute settlement um, system or the looming crisis with the dispute settlement system, the problems in terms of the U.S. approach to appointments to the um, appellate body have kind of gone back further in time before this administration um, as well. I wondered if you might kind of explain what what this derives from. So again, I I do think we are at, or certainly we are mere weeks or months away from a genuine crisis in terms of the appellate body is supposed to have seven members. It must have a minimum of three in order to decide any given case. And we're now down to that bare minimum of three because the United States has blocked any and all consideration of any reappointments or appointments of any new members. So what going down to three means is if you come to the day when either one of the sitting three members needs to be recused because of something they might have done in the past in terms of conflicts, or we run up to December of next year when two of the three members' terms will expire, we will be down to a non-functioning appellate body. When and if that happens, every case um, that then is potentially subject to an appeal raises the potential of creating its own little mini-trade war. Whoever lost the case is going to want to file an appeal in order to say you cannot take any action until the appeal has been completed. That's the way the rules read. You must wait until the appeal has been completed before you take any action. But if there is no appellate body, there is no action that will be taken, which will then prompt whoever was the winner of the case to begin unilateral action. And then the respondent takes unilateral counter-retaliation and then more retaliation. So we really are at a breaking point in the system. Why has the United States done this? I think if you listen to what the United States says, it's a variety of reasons. Uh, But they generally fall into the category of a number of decisions that were made that, under the United States' view of it, added to the obligations of the United States, went beyond what is in the text of the WTO agreements themselves. A narrative has taken hold in the United States, which I think used to be a minority view. And the narrative was this, that the United States would agree to join the WTO and the binding dispute settlement mechanism of the WTO in exchange for a deal under which the appellate body and the dispute settlement system would not and could not add to the rights or obligations of the United States. And now, under this administration, they are very clearly saying it's the appellate body that's broken that bargain. And therefore, now it is okay for the United States to engage in unilateral action, unilateral steel and aluminum tariffs, unilateral tariffs against China, because the appellate body broke the bargain. I I believe some of the concerns date back even before this administration, right? Some of these concerns have been there for 10 or 12 or 15 years. Uh, So, yes. The general notion that the appellate body has gotten various things wrong, uh, that that view um, has been there for quite some time. And what they've gotten wrong is, again, this notion of writing the law or making decisions that are not strictly based on the text itself, um, engaging in rulemaking, uh, which is beyond, if you will, the remit of, of a court or an adjudicatory body. That claim has been there for quite some time. And whether or not other countries agree with it, I think there's some agreement in some cases on some issues. But a lot of the other issues, I would say there's not as much agreement. And with respect to the United States' unilateral tactic of blocking the appointment of any new judges, there is no support. So then what would be 
a way out now, given we're not assuming they're going to change their mind right now and, and let through some of the judges. Is there any other way out in the well, meantime? Well, again, so I, I personally have said there's at least, I think, maybe three roads that you could go down. One road, I think, has been started to some degree by the European Union. Uh, the European Commission has put out, I think, a very thoughtful set of approaches on how you would fix these problems um, at the WTO appellate body, some on sort of smaller procedural issues and some on some of the more broad issues. But my thought would be one road that you could go down is to take the European Commission up at its offer, fix those, many of them are what I would argue are very fixable issues. I don't believe that those will entirely satisfy the United States, but at least it is moving the ball along. It is hearing to some degree the United States' concerns. So fix those things. And then my own view would be run the normal selection process in which everyone in Geneva gives their input on which of the candidates they would prefer over which other ones. Everyone can have their input. Presumably then the selection committee that exists at the appellate body, it's already, I mean, at the WTO, it's already there. You know, the chairman of the dispute settlement body, the chairman, the director general of the WTO, and the chairs of the major committees make up the selection committee. They could then recommend a slate in the normal way that they've always done in the past. That slate then comes to the dispute settlement body, which is all 164 members of the WTO sitting there. And in theory, then, you have to decide whether or not you're going to get a consensus on that slate of names. My own view would be if at that point the United States continues to block, my own view would be then the option would be to go ahead and vote to approve that slate. Voting has never been done in the WTO. It is permitted under the rules. Uh, but it's always, everyone has always been reluctant to move away from the consensus-based approach to making decisions at the WTO. My argument, I guess, would be that uh, two things. One, this would be voting only on a slate of names. Uh, so it is not quite the same as deciding to go to voting for every rule, for every decision, for major changes in the actual text. And secondly, it is drawing a little bit of a distinction between the appointment, the idea of appointing specific individuals as opposed to making decisions which need to be done by consensus. But that's at least one road you could go down. The concern is it has the effect, arguably, of significantly isolating the United States if the U.S., again, remains inalterably opposed um, and, and at least begs the question of whether the United States would from henceforth then say that somehow this group of members is an illegitimate body or in some way doesn't have uh, the legitimacy that any any court would need. To me, option two, a second road, might be to think differently about how to handle cases involving trade remedies. So this is decisions involving anti-dumping or countervailing duty or safeguards. More than 90% of the United States' concerns with individual decisions are about trade remedy decisions. And sorry, That's, what's the concern? Is it that The concern has generally been that the United States has put on anti-dumping or countervailing duties or safeguards. The challenge has come saying that the United States has not done it consistently with the WTO rules on anti-dumping or countervailing duty or safeguards. And the decisions then that have come uh, from the appellate body have been ones that have gone against the United States. And again, most of the U.S.'s concerns come in this area. They come with respect to a whole series of decisions that outlaw a practice known as zeroing, which is one of the ways in which you calculate the margin of dumping. They come in a very strong objection to the definition of what is a government or public body 
that occurs in the countervailing duty subsidy cases, where the appellate body decision was that a public body is defined as an entity that has a governmental function, which basically rules out state-owned enterprises as necessarily being involved in subsidies disciplines. Um, The United States has objected very strongly in the safeguards area to a decision that read this word unforeseen developments into safeguards cases. So it's, it's specific decisions, but a whole series of them, all in this area of trade remedies. So my thought would be to potentially create a second specialized appellate body that would only handle appeals from trade remedy cases, and you would populate that second special appellate body with people that had real expertise in this trade remedies realm, or alternatively, simply eliminate appeals for trade remedy decisions, not for everything else, just for trade remedy decisions, on the theory that every country, when they impose an anti-dumping duty or a countervailing duty or a safeguard, they already have an investigating authority in their own government that has made the decision that all of the facts and figures and the evidence has already been compiled to put that decision in place. So the panel is already acting like an appeals review uh, because the countries themselves have already engaged in what what a normal trial court would do in terms of conducting an investigation. So at least a second road would be to try to figure out a way to shave off, if you will, or cordon off trade remedy disputes into a separate path for its appeals. And that may be um, something that would really satisfy a, a significant amount of the U.S. concern. A third path is one that's been proposed um, by a number of, of trade remedy lawyers. And, and again, my understanding is being cons- significantly looked at, particularly in Europe, uh, by the European Commission, which is to use an existing provision in the WTO rules, Article 25, and conduct all appeals as an arbitration. Uh, Article 25 provi- allows parties to agree um, that they will arbitrate a dispute instead of going through the normal dispute settlement mechanism, and that you would basically just, it's never been used, but it's there, uh, that you would set up all of the appeals as though they were an arbitration. Downside of that is I think it's it's immediately giving up any hope that you would ever get an appellate body back again. And secondly, it presumes that the United States would agree to arbitrate on a case-by-case basis. And I think for many countries, they would be rightfully skeptical Uh, that the United States would only be willing to arbitrate if they thought they could win uh, and may not be willing to arbitrate if they didn't. Um, Going to your first scenario um, and and looking as well then at uh, some of the other cases in which uh, we might actually see a U.S. withdrawal from the WTO. Um, we've, we've, I mean, this has been talked about explicitly or implicitly with also with reference to the China market economy status case. Um, and of course, there's the, the, the question, um, which was also raised in a uh, speech again uh, here the other week by Ambassador Shea with, with reference to the U.S. capacity to make decisions based on national security considerations and the WTA's capacity to run that. These have been two areas where there have been some clear uh, threats that if certain decisions are taken, um, you you could see a U.S. Uh, with withdrawal. I wondered if you might both speak to uh, these uh, these scenarios and then what would actually what, what you think would happen next if that were actually to happen. So I think the one that at least I think would be the most problematic for the United States are the ones in the national security realm. Because we have put these steel and aluminum tariffs on, 
because so many other members of the WTO have challenged the 232 tariffs. The United States has imposed a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. And it's justified these tariffs under U.S. domestic law, um, a Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, which in under U.S. law has an extraordinarily broad definition of what is national security. It goes, it covers a very wide array of traditional national security claims, but then also includes a sentence that covers, in essence, all everything connected to the economy, underemployment, unemployment, the economic welfare of a given domestic industry, effectively saying that economic security is national security. So under the auspices of this national security, the United States has imposed these tariffs. The problem for the United States is the imposition of those tariffs absolutely violates the WTO. Under the WTO rules, for example, the United States, as all countries, has committed not to charge tariffs above our bound tariff rates. Our bound tariff rate on steel is zero. So any tariff above zero is an absolute violation of Article 2 of the GATT of our tariff commitments. Ditto for aluminum. Our bound tariffs are somewhere between 1% to 5.6%, depending on the product. So a 10% tariff is an absolute violation. Secondly, we've clearly violated the most favored nation clause of the WTO because it says if you impose a tariff or anything else, you have to impose it equally on all of your trading partners. We've put this tariffs on steel and aluminum on everybody, but not Australia, not South Korea, not Argentina, not Brazil. So we've clearly violated our MFN commitments. Article 10 of the GATT basically says that you can apply trade measures you have to do so with, in essence, a modicum of due process. But here we put these tariffs on, even though there were already goods on the water coming to us before anybody knew the tariffs were going to be imposed. So nobody had any choice but to have to pay those duties. So across the board, the United States has violated its WTO commitments by putting these tariffs on. So there's, no, there's nothing that you can say other than it's a blatant violation until you then come to the defense. And the defense that the United States is clearly going to assert is this defense of national security, which is embodied in Article 21 of the GATT. The problem for the United States is what does Article 21 say? It says you may do any measure that you judge to be in your essential security interests. So that's fine enough for the United States because they're arguing, again, this is a self-judging provision. We get to judge we get to decide what measure. The problem is it doesn't stop there. The provision in the WTO goes on to say that this essential security measure must relate to fissionable materials, so nuclear things. Well, clearly the steel and the aluminum are not nuclear. Or it must relate to trafficking in arms or ammunition. Again, clearly these steel and aluminum products are not themselves arms or ammunition. Or it must be taken in a time of war or other international emergency. Again, I think the United States is going to have a very hard time saying that it is in a state of war or other international emergency vis-a-vis Canada or vis-a-vis the European Union. I, no one is going to accept that these tariffs fall into any one of these boxes. So instead, what the United States is arguing, and it's arguing it right now, is that this entire Article 21 defense is entirely self-judging. And the moment the United States says that it is intends to invoke it, its view is 
any panel has to put down its pen and go home. Uh, that there is nothing a panel can do. They can't even ask, which box are you in? Uh, they can't ask for any evidence about where is this war or other international emergency. There's nothing that a panel can or should do. They can't judge it at all. The problem for the WTO is they're put in a very much between a rock and a hard place. If they agree with the United States that it's self-judging, you get to decide. If you say it's within your national security interests, we let it go. Every other country in the world can put tariffs or quotas on every other product that they want and make the same allegation that the United States is making. I think it's in my national security interest. I get to judge, and you can't um, examine me or question me. Uh, so you've, again, thrown out the rule book if you take that approach. And if you take the opposite view, no, United States, you need to prove that there is, in fact, an international emergency or a state of war or that these really are trafficking in arms, uh, then the United States is going to say, particularly this Trump administration, who are you, WTO, to judge me and my national security? If you think you have the right to do that, we withdraw. And I, my own concern about whether or not the United States would actually do this, I will say, has been increased when you think about what um, President Trump said at the United Nations, what John Bolton has said about uh, never, ever subjecting anyone to the International Criminal Court or to the International Court of Justice, you know, that this is somehow a complete deprivation of the United States' sovereignty. It's not very many steps from that kind of a thinking to the notion that if the WTO were to try to judge the United States' national security, even under this narrow Article 21, to say that the United States would pull out. Then you come to the question of, can Trump just do this? Can he just withdraw from the WTO? There you come up against U.S. law. And here is the place where I at least think the U.S. law is quite clear on this point. What does the U.S. law say? It sets up a process. If the United States wishes to withdraw from the WTO, it has to be done on the basis of a joint resolution of the Congress. And the statute here to me is unambiguous. If and only if a joint resolution of the Congress under certain specific conditions with certain specific language in it passes, can the United States withdraw from the WTO? The concern is that the Trump administration, in my view, isn't very concerned about what the law says. Secondly, they are willing to threaten a lot of things even when they may not have the legal authority to carry it through. And so just the mere threat, hanging over, hanging over, hanging over the WTO, um, is a huge problem. Uh, for the WTO and for, and for the rules-based trading system. And in many ways, it's very much like what was done in the course of the renegotiation of the NAFTA, where the president threatens every other week that he's going to withdraw from the NAFTA unless and until Mexico or Canada agree to something. My own view was he still did not have the legal authority to withdraw from the NAFTA either, but that didn't prevent him from threatening it on a weekly basis. And it is the uncertainty and the chaos of all of the threats that is actually having a huge chilling effect on, on trade and on investment and on all of the other countries who actually believe in a rules-based system. This uncertainty that you mentioned hinders any kind of progress in a number of the other uh, negotiations that are potentially ongoing. And I thought maybe you could wrap the WTO part for a second. And since we're at GMF, I was going to ask you a bit about the transatlantic uh, situation or trade spat that we're in right now. I mean, we've had TTIP, 
uh, and arguably that was not as controversially um, discussed during the campaign as the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership, but it just kind of went to sleep when Trump took over. Since then, as we already mentioned, steel and aluminum tariffs have been imposed also on the EU. Then we had the meeting between President Juncker and Trump where they came to some sort of agreement, although it never seemed entirely clear what followed from that. Since then, we've had several meetings. Recently, there has been some unhappiness that was expressed on the part of the US where officials have said they feel the EU is dragging their feet on negotiating anything. And over all of this is hanging this cloud of potentially imposing car tariffs, a problem, especially for big countries like Germany. So where do you see the current transatlantic spat standing? And are the sides just trying to drag their feet here? Or is this an actual negotiation in your view? I think it's too early to tell whether it's an actual negotiation. Formally, the United States sent a letter very recently uh, putting the Congress on notice that it does intend to negotiate an agreement with the European Union. Uh, that letter says very clearly that the intent is to reduce tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade as between the United States and the EU. Uh, it does not say much more than that. So we really don't know exactly what is going to be the parameters of this negotiation. Presumably, under the law, the United States eventually has to provide the Congress with fulsome negotiating objectives. And I think once we see those, we'll have a lot better sense of to what degree are services included in this, to what degree are regulatory barriers included in this, to what degree are, are investment or IP or any of the other broader things that were included as part of the TPP when it was being negotiated, some of which has been folded into this new NAFTA, whether we're talking about that kind of a big, broad agreement or whether it is going to be a narrow, goods-only kind of an agreement where we're really just focused on tariffs. So I think a little too early to tell the scope. In terms of the backdrop of it, I think it's quite problematic. Uh, I think a fair amount of time was significantly wasted before the president was prepared to accept the basic notion that the European Union is a single market um, and is a customs union, since his initial take was that he wanted to negotiate bilateral agreements with Germany, with France, with the UK, um, which obviously you cannot do. Um, I think a lot of people worked hard to try to explain that would be the equivalent of trying to do an agreement with the state of Michigan, um, which, again, everybody would accept you can't do it that way. Uh, it took a while, I think, for the president to finally accept that notion. Uh, so on the one hand, I think good news coming out of the, the meeting uh, between uh, Juncker and, and Trump, that there is an acknowledgement that the negotiations needed to be at the EU level um, and not at the level of EU member states. The bad news, I think, is, um, is that there isn't really a sense of what the shape or the parameter of this would be. And the third, to me, piece of bad news is that the president seems to be uniquely fixated on autos um, and on comparing uh, the tariff um, in European Union of 10% versus the tariff in the United States of 2.5%. Of course, the president conveniently leaves out that our truck tariff is 25%. Uh, so again, he keeps constantly saying that we need to have reciprocal trade agreements, presumably meeting the same tariff level as between the EU and the United States. Uh, I, I think if that's all we're talking about, my sense is there's a good chance that we could get somewhere uh, that both sides could live with. But my concern is uh, there's probably a lot more out there. What would happen if, 
if the U.S. imposed hard tariffs on this level. That's a magnitude bigger than the steel and aluminum, I would assume. Oh, of ma- major orders of magnitude. The, the car tariffs, I think, would be an absolute disaster all the way around. I mean, hugely, hugely damaging to the United States. I mean, the United States has recently become a significant exporter of cars. If you do this and put a 25% tariff on, on cars and auto parts coming into the United States, we will not be exporting any cars. We may not be even making any more cars. It will it will have a massively damaging impact on the on the U.S. auto industry. Um, you think about it right now. I mean, one of the major exporters from the United States are BMW cars made in South Carolina that are going to China. I mean, fifteen percent of all of the cars made in the United States today are exported. The moment Trump puts tariffs on autos and auto parts. It's nigh on to impossible for a lot of the car companies to even make a car because they are importing a significant number of the parts and cannot do it if you put a 25% duty on it. And presumably, everybody else will retaliate. So again, there will be no export market for any of our cars. So hugely damaging to the United States. My sense is this may be a bridge too far even for this quite so far spineless Republican Congress that might finally say this is too much. Uh, you do have two pieces of legislation pending in the Congress to take away the president's uh, Section 232, this national security power, to cut back and say, no, you do not have the authority to just do this. Um, if you're going to put on tariffs, the Congress has to approve it first. If any of those pieces of legislation were to pass, again, the president would not have the votes in the Congress Uh, to impose these tariffs. I mean, it is largely opposed by most everyone in the United States. So the question is whether the president will do it anyway. If tariffs were to go on cars, again, I think you would have the same kind of reaction you saw to the steel and aluminum tariffs, only more so. Everyone will challenge at the WTO and win. Everyone will consider or at least think about retaliatory tariffs. Um, And we're arguably back in the 1930s, where we all engage in beggar thy neighbor uh, policies that lead us into very bad places. So I think the hope is that that is such a dramatically bad result all the way around that the president will be talked out of it or that the Congress will take away his authority to do it. Andrew, maybe we can turn it a bit to your part of the world and talk a bit about China and Asia. So, I mean, clearly the area on the transatlantic side on which there is supposed to be substantial agreement and, and where there is some degree of coordination taking place um, is on the, the, the China-related um, piece of the, the puzzle here. Um, now, before going into the kind of coordination, China coalition um, questions in the trade world, I just wondered if we could kind of wind back um, a little bit. Um, we've we've had statements, including from Ambassador Lighthizer, saying um, essentially that Chinese membership of the WTO in its entirety was a mistake. Um, there's a lot of hand-wringing taking place in D.C., more broadly on China, uh, along the lines of we got China wrong, not just in, 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 the, in, the, in the trade realm, but, but beyond that. Um, you were closely involved in, in, in some of the negotiations that led to China's WTO entry. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of give your assessment, um, looking back, uh, of how realistic our expectations were at the time, what we might have done differently then or subsequently, um, and in a certain sense, beyond that as well, just what are the problems that um, at least the major 
advanced industrialized economies have with with, with China um, right now? And how has this come about? From my part, I don't know that I would go quite as far as Bob Lighthizer would in terms of it was a mistake to have China join the WTO, because I think an awful lot of the change that occurred in China um, and a lot of the economic development that has occurred in China occurred as a result of China changing a lot of its own economy, opening up its own economy, becoming at least somewhat more of an open rules-based system. You have to remember, I mean, China has lifted, you know, millions out of poverty um, over the course of the last 20 years. So I, I think it's really not fair to describe it as entirely a mistake um, when you think about how much more China has been able to do with its own economy. I do, however, think there was a significant change within China. In other words, my own view is for the first number of years, I don't know exactly how many years I would say, but for the first four or five or six years after China joined the WTO in 2001, China was on a path to becoming a much more market-oriented economy. It was on a path to opening up to much more um, input and much more information and much more travel and much more engagement in the world across every front. Um, and then at some point, a turndown occurred uh, where you started to see much more significant aggrandizement of power in very much more subtle ways um, throughout the Chinese economy with the creation of the SASEC, the state-owned asset, the asset holding company that now holds almost 50% of the manufacturing assets in China. So you started to have this you know, this outreach of all of these tentacles of the Chinese government and ultimately of the Communist Party. Uh, and you saw it both on the manufacturing side and you saw it very clearly with the creation of, of Central Hujin Investment Limited that basically owns or controls more than half of the financial assets in China. I mean, fundamentally controls the four largest banks in China. And then you've started to see more and more of the in foreign invested corporations start to have that Communist Party member be designated a member of their boards. So you did start to see a turn in which the Chinese government writ large or the Communist Party or various amalgams of it started to exert heavier and heavier control within the Chinese economy. And then, you know, you saw the, you know, kicking out of Google on and on. So you start to now see China become a very different kind of an economy than what was imagined when we were negotiating its accession to the WTO, which occurred largely in the late 1990s. So I think both sides, there's some, you know, I don't know what one could have done to have predicted this change in events in China. Uh, I think they've only gotten much more so with Xi Jinping now asserting power in a way that he is now subject to no term limit. So you've seen a further aggrandizement of that power in China. Um, and looking at the scope then in terms of coordination between, um, I mean, particularly we have this trilateral process going on between uh, USTR, uh, METI in Japan, and DG Trade. In light of all the other things that we've been talking about in terms of the kind of uh, divergences in philosophy in a certain sense when it comes to trade, um, how much scope is there for a kind of coordinated China coalition right now with this administration? Well, this is the one, to me, the one bright star on the horizon, because for whatever reason, and I really do commend the Japanese and the European Commission for um, being willing to sit down at the table and have these discussions uh, with the United States, notwithstanding the fact that the U.S. has put tariffs on their steel and aluminum, 
and engaged in this very bullying, sort of threatening behavior, the fact that they are sitting down, I think, is commendable on all sides. My understanding from what I can see is that I think they are tackling the two most important issues, which is that they are trying to come up with new and different ways to think about disciplining subsidies in China and new and different ways to think about how do we discipline forced technology transfers, both of which I think are really at the heart and soul of why it's been so difficult for everyone to think about China in the WTO, China in a a rules-based system. It's because the rules have gotten it wrong in terms of how to discipline subsidies. So to me, I'm, I'm really glad to see this. I think the plan is to see if you can actually come up with really uh, the language that everyone can agree upon about what are we talking about when we say we want better disciplines on subsidies? What do we mean when we say we're going to try to stop forced technology transfers? Exactly how far does that go? And how much beyond just tech transfer do we get into general issues of IP theft and, and, and other aspects of it? But I think the thought is to come up with actual language and then try to figure out whether or not European Union and Japan can come up with their own form of leverage vis-a-vis China. I mean, arguably, the United States has leverage in the form of its 301 tariffs. But the question is, okay, so what is Europe and Japan putting into this mix? If there is then a significant amount of leverage, the notion is go to China and say, all right. You know, if you want to get out from under these tariffs, if you want to get out from whatever the other leverage is by Japan or the European Union, you've got to sit down with us and discuss these disciplines on subsidies and on tech transfer. And then I think thought three, step three, is to figure out whether there's a way to then bring all of that into the WTO or into any other form of a large plurilateral or others uh, where you would have a dispute settlement system that could hold China uh, to the commitments that it might make. And you've argued in another context, and I think when we put the podcast out, we will be circulating your testimony on on, on this subject with it as well. Uh, You've argued that it is possible essentially to to do this through WTO mechanisms, that bringing what you describe as a big, bold case between a number of the different parties to the WTO is the best way of proceeding. I mean, clearly part of the critique, if it, if it merits being called that from the administration, is that these things have to be done bilaterally and the WTO is not viable to address the range of complaints that there are against China. Right. And my own view is you should do all of the above. In other words, I think the trilateral cooperation effort should just keep right on going. But I do believe that it would make a lot of sense to bring a very big case against China. And when I say a big case, I mean it big both in terms of who would be bringing the complaint, because there again, I think it ought to be the largest coalition you can put together of the United States, of Japan, the European Union, Australia, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe Brazil, maybe. But again, as big and broad a coalition as you can get. Why a big coalition? Two real reasons. Uh, One is to share evidence. Because one of the things that is very difficult in terms of bringing these cases is whether or not you've got enough evidence to prove each of the complaints that you're making. And it's particularly hard in China because it is a very non-transparent system, so it's quite difficult to get the kind of evidence that you need. And the hope is that you could pool all of the evidence that's out there among this broad coalition of countries. The second reason why you want a broad coalition is protection from retaliation, because it's very clear that China retaliates and retaliates immediately anytime a country does something that uh, China does not like. I mean, if 
Norway gives the, when Norway gave the Nobel Prize um, out, immediately China starts banning Norwegian salmon from being imported into China. Uh, when the Philippines challenges uh, the building up of the island in the South China Sea and wins a case before the ICJ, the first thing China does is ban all Philippine mangoes. All of a sudden, mangoes have become unacceptable uh, as an import into China. So the idea would be if you had a big coalition, it would be much harder for China to immediately retaliate against everybody just because they brought the case. What would be in this case, in my view, there is, I've called it the sort of dirty dozen of actual violations, where in my view, China very clearly committed to certain things in its protocol of accession in the WTO, where it said unequivocally, we would not link uh, technology transfer to the granting of a joint venture license or other things, and they're clearly doing it. China said they clearly would have an independent judiciary that would review these specific actions. They clearly do not have an independent judiciary reviewing these actions, etc. You would go through each of these 13 ones where you're making a very specific claim of here's where you promised this, here's where you're violating it. But then to me, overarching it all, you would bring what is referred to in the WTO as a non-violation case, uh, where you're saying it's not a specific violation of a specific rule but it has nullified and impaired the benefits that everybody else thought they were getting when China joined the WTO. And this is the one that really goes to this notion of, we thought we were, you were going to become more of a market economy, and you haven't. You've gone the other way. And the entire system of the WTO is at some level premised on the notion of a market economy, or at least trading on normal terms of supply and demand. Uh, that companies go bankrupt, that there is the notion of, of competition or antitrust disciplines, that there are price and supply disciplines. And since your economy doesn't function with any of those, you either have to change your economy or you don't belong in the WTO. So the idea would be that you would bring this broad set of claims. The third reason why, in my view, it makes sense to do this is either the case will win and China will be forced to come to some kind of a negotiating table around what's compliance going to look like. Because under the WTO rules, that would be the mandate to China, bring your measures into compliance. So there would have to be then some kind of a significant negotiation with all of the parties that brought the case and China to figure out what this compliance looks like. If on the other hand, the case were to lose, if you will, if there was to be a finding that no, in fact, um, there really isn't a claim here, it would make it very clear to all of the members of the WTO where there are holes in the existing rules. Where do you need to change uh, the existing rules of the WTO in order to get at these kind of behaviors? Because right now, I will say, I think there is a significant amount of support for the substance of what the United States is arguing, particularly the substance of what was in the original 301 report that talked about these forced technology issues, that talked about IP theft, particularly trade secret theft, that talked about the degree of Chinese subsidies into the Made in China 2025 industries, et cetera. Many countries in the world, I think, share those substantive concerns. But the problem for the United States is right now no one shares the unilateral tactical approach of the United States of putting these unilateral tariffs on China. So to me, the other idea behind this case is it allows people to marry their, their sharing of the substantive concerns, and now we could arguably have a shared tactical approach um, as opposed to having the United States go it alone. 
And the last reason why I think that there needs to be a big case and the United States needs to work with others is I don't think the United States has enough leverage, no matter what they do, um, in order to get China to try to make the kind of changes that we really need made. I don't care if we put tariffs on all of China's imports. Even that is not enough to push the kind of changes that you need. And part of it is I don't think it's realistic to expect China to move um, in response to the bullying unilateral pressure from the United States. There needs to be some wins that come out of this for China. And part of that is what also would come out of the case is the ability to help China understand that if it made some of these changes, its economy would be in better shape. It would leave China much more economically and much more uh, capable over the long haul. It would create a much more resilient, more vibrant, more growth-oriented economy within China such that China could come out of this whole process a member in good standing of a rules-based system with a stronger, better economy than it has today. Part of the 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 argument that you hear, not always articulated publicly um, in the from the administration um, on this, is I mean, there's one version that says that what they're trying to do, either unilaterally or through for those who believe in the multilateral route, is to try and affect this change on on China's part, and that's the goal. Um, you also hear a version, though, that ties together, I suppose, with some of the broader geopolitical contest, competition elements between the US and China that says effectively that the real objective is either to, whether the word is decoupling, disentangling um, the US and Chinese economies, that essentially they're, they're too intertwined given the fact that the two systems are different and they're heading into a period of intensifying rivalry and that actually the goal of this kind of sustained process of trade war with China, all of these forms of pressure is effectively to bring about that kind of disentanglement. You have people running around to US companies right now from the administration essentially saying, you should move your value chain. If not repatriate your value chain, then then certainly relocate production facilities to other countries in Asia. This is not spelled out very actively, I, I think, in public in terms of the case that's that's made. But I wondered if you could kind of speak to that version of how US policy might play out. One doesn't hear very much about what the economic implications or costs would be of a kind of deeper disentanglement of the two economies, whether that's even something realistic. But I wondered if you could speak to that. Well, you are completely right that I think no one really knows uh, what exactly the end goal here is. Um, Certainly, there are some that believe it is trying to promote this larger change within China. I definitely agree with you. There are There's plenty of evidence that some people within the administration want exactly as you describe. They want to force the U.S. companies that are have gone to China, that have moved their value chains over to China to get out of China. Um, I, I think many would say get out by building a large tariff wall around the United States so that if you want to sell anything in the United States, you have to make it in the United States. And that will force everyone to pull back out of China so that if you want to sell an iPhone or whatever the product is, the idea would be you build a big, tall tariff wall around the United States, and then you must make it here if you want to sell it here, because otherwise you can't you can't afford uh, to get over that wall. I, 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 there's nothing I can say other than there may be some truth to that, because if you think about the road we're headed down, it may be exactly that, that we're trying to build this tariff wall in order to make everybody make everything here in, in the United States. Um, I don't think as a practical matter that that's very realistic at all. 
uh, first of all, if you simply push people out of China, it is not at all clear to me that they come back to the United States. Uh, there's more, much more likely that they're going to move elsewhere uh, within Asia or, or India or other places, but it's not at all clear that that means they're coming back to the United States. Um, but it would achieve this goal of, of disentangling from China, of saying we are not going to have so much cross-investment as between uh, the United States and China. And I think you see further evidence of this disentanglement um, by the efforts that are being made to adjust our uh, Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States CFIUS process by which the United States can turn down um, investments coming in, arguably just because they're coming in from China. Um, and to the extent that you do that, that's a further disentangling um, as between the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy. So there's no doubt you are correct. This is what you are hearing uh, from a lot of companies, that that's what they perceive um, the end goal to be. You know, and the third one that you hear um, is if you listen sometimes to the president, that all he really wants is to lower the bilateral deficit as between the United States and China. So if he can simply urge China, push China, cajole China into buying lots more stuff from the United States, that he will be satisfied. Um, that if, we'll, if China will just buy two, three, four hundred billion dollars more things from the United States, that we'll, that we'll be satisfied. There are various uh, non-benign scenarios for where all of this comes out. There's one version of it that is a kind of self-isolated uh, U.S. on this. There's one version, even on a kind of benign scenario in terms of multilateral coordination, in which China is essentially the isolated party. The question on, on this is, I mean, what do you see actually emerging from all of this in terms of how the global economy, how trade is, is regulated in, in future, and, and whether these things are, we're essentially heading in some form or other towards a kind of incompatibility of how the various economic models, the Chinese state-led model and the kind of free market models now relate to each other. Well, I would agree with you that I think we could be headed for a very difficult and sort of scary uh, world. Um, I don't think it will be China isolated alone. Uh, I think the more likely scenario is countries are forced at some level to choose um, whether they want to be on the U.S. side of the table or whether they want to be on the Chinese side. This of the would table. also, for the EU, for example, it would be caught between these two and you would think it has to... And, and you see it already in terms of where is China's um, Belt and Road Initiative going. Um, and clearly, the, I think the idea of, of China's is to try to make sure that there are more and more countries that, as between the choice, will choose China. Um, and you certainly see that in a number of the Chinese initiatives, uh, both on the financial side and on the trade side, to make sure that everybody, as many countries as possible, get pulled into that China orbit. Uh, and I think that is an awful lot of the undercurrent of the Belt Road Initiative, is to have more and more countries whose ports and roads and railroads and trucking lines and shipping lines are very much controlled by, under the auspices of, paid for, etc., through the Belt and Road Initiative, such that they are linked, linked um, in a very inexorable way to China. Uh, and I think that there's no question in my mind that that is part of the, the strategy by China, is to make sure that whatever the orbit of China is, it's a large one, it's growing, and it's pulling more people into the China orbit, and it's the United States that ends up more and more isolated all by itself. Um, and to some degree, you, you see this already playing out in the U.S. reaching out in this new NAFTA to include this clause that says you cannot negotiate an agreement with 
a non-market economy without first telling the United States and that we might pull out of the NAFTA if you do that. I mean, you already see this notion of let's create a lot of poison pills everywhere we can for anybody else doing a deal with China. Um, I don't know whether this could come onto the agenda as between the United States and the EU or others where we're going to try to use that NAFTA model uh, to say we're going to put poison pills everywhere uh, against the idea of doing an agreement with any with China. I, I don't see this uh, going in a good direction right now, which is why, to me, you know, the, the right answer is to double down on a rules-based system. I mean, to work more than ever to try to create um, crossovers in all of the multilateral institutions. I mean, my bottom line is, as you're starting to see, if you will, the coming Cold War between the United States and China, what you need is more multilateralism, not less, more rules-based, not less. And so my, my strong hope is that there are others that will do a lot of that to revamp and revitalize uh, the multilateral system, because I see that's really the only way we're going to avert this path to a, to a new Cold War. Before we go, we have our famous segment, Think or Tank, where we uh, mention an item that made us think or that we thought tanked. Andrew, why don't you kick us off? Well, uh, segging very directly from the prospect of a, a US-China uh, Cold War, obviously it has already had quite a lot of attention. The vice president's speech at the Hudson Institute earlier this month, which does merit uh, a read, I think, You've, you've heard in this administration, kind of behind the scenes, a lot of these different complaints um, relating to China across a series of different sectors. This was the one point at which all of this was pulled together into a kind of long list. Now, we're obviously supposed to decide whether this is a think or a tank. I think it hangs somewhere in between. Um, uh, obviously, I mean, this is the first point in which you've had this comprehensive case uh, laid out by someone as senior in the administration. And I, I think it does kind of herald quite an important moment in the direction in which US-China relations are going. The issue, though, if you if you look at the, the speech is, it has actually been possible to have quite a strong bipartisan coalition on China-related issues, unlike in so many other areas of foreign policy. There was a degree of a direction in, in the speech, particularly with reference to the claims about Chinese interference in US elections, um, being far greater than that of Russia, and, and a couple of other elements that did take it in a more kind of politicized and, and partisan direction. Um, and if I think if the administration wants to hold the coalition together on, on China-related issues, and externally the coalitions that might be built on China, I think that they will need to continue to tread carefully um, in terms of ensuring that they're able to build a broader base of support, which I, I think has been possible. But the con one concern I, I think that one saw in this speech for the first time is that there may be temptations to play it in a different direction. Great. Thank you. Jennifer. Well, I guess I'm going to go from a very broad uh, view that, that Andrew has just said to something perhaps more narrow. But for me, uh, I'm going to say it because I think it undergirds a lot of this backlash to globalization that we've seen. And so the one that I've been reading lately um, is a book called Failure to Adjust uh, that was put out by the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Ted Alden is the author. The reason I say it is because my sense is that um, he's right in what he is saying, that if we are going to get everyone re-engaged in globalization and recommitted to the idea of trade and to a rules-based trading system, we have to figure out how to make it work for everybody. 
And it's clear that one of the huge problems and one of the underpinnings of the backlash, and to me, the underpinning of Donald Trump's election, is our failure to deal with the huge, growing wealth gap in the United States, the massive gap between the haves and the have-nots, and the inability of the gains of globalization and the gains of trade to be shared more fairly within a country. It's not just about how the gains are spread among the trading partners, but it's within a country. And I think he really lays out how important it is that everybody link their trade policies to serious commitments to long-term worker training, to health care, to portable pensions, to all of the things that allow more people to share more fairly in the benefits of trade. And that the real, real underlying problem that's going to cause, you know, again, collapse in the world, if you will, is the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And that we simply have to start moving in another direction. Um, And I think this book sort of gives you some ideas about how you might do that. Great. Thank you. Mine is not related directly to trade, but broadly, maybe it is to the question of systems and and so on. So this is an essay by Ezra Klein, which he called The Rigging of American Politics. And in light of the upcoming elections, this uh, has made me think uh, quite a bit. It's about the legitimacy of the um, political system in, in America in light of the possibility that there could be increasingly a minority rule system in that Republicans have not won the popular vote in the presidential elections and could now even maintain control of the House of Representatives, despite not winning a majority of votes across the country. So the key quote is the following. It is not difficult to imagine an America where Republicans consistently win the presidency despite rarely winning the popular vote, where they control both the House and the Senate despite rarely winning more votes than the Democrats, where the dominance of the Supreme Court is unquestioned and where all this power is used to buttress a system of partisan gerrymandering and pro-corporate campaign finance laws and strict voter ID requirements and anti-union legislation and further weakens Democrats' electoral performance. If this seems outlandish, well, it simply describes the world we live in now. So that's how Ezra Klein describes this potential. And he's worried that more and more this will lead people to question the overall legitimacy of the political system. So it's not a happy read, but I recommend it nonetheless. With that, I'm going to close. Thank you very much, Jennifer, again. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for taking over as co-host. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts.